only get Thanks for joining us on the Two Brothers, One Dead Dad podcast. Today we're going to mix things up a bit, and I'm going to interview Rocky J about something I've always wondered about, him dropping out of high school. So to start, what made you decide to drop out? Was it like um, disillusionment with school, moment of clarity about it, or just something else altogether? I mean... So it's kind of a big, st- you know, so like in the eighth grade, I'd already just, I'd already kind of like told people I was going to drop out and be a drug dealer. That was like my plan. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I told my teachers that and they're like, oh my God. And I mean, I kind of said it to be shocking and I kind of said it because I halfway meant it. You know, you know, we watched Miami Vice all the time and mm-hmm. it seemed, I know it sounds like totally crazy eighth grader thing to say. So went from eighth grade to high school. You know, high school was okay. Like it was kind of hard because you were, you know, I was used to being like the big shot in eighth grade because you're like the biggest class. So even though I had kind of like talked about it, uh, you know, like it wasn't really like a serious plan. It was just one of those crazy things I said. But then during Easter break of my freshman year, so like every day on Easter break, me and Sean and that guy, Travis, we would just like smoke pot and play Super Mario Brothers. And then, you know, that lasted like a week and then vacation was over. And I forget why, like, I forget the moment I decided, but I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm not ready to go back. I didn't go back the next week or the week after that or the week after that. And then dad got a letter, I think three or four weeks afterwards saying that I wasn't going. So like, he didn't even know, like, you know, cause he was at work all day. Mm-hmm. I was just out and about like hanging out with Sean, hanging out with Travis, or we'd be hanging out at the house playing video games. The letter was from the high school and it was said, yeah, you know, uh, it looks like he stopped attending school. Dad, I think called them and they're like, you know, there's not a whole bunch we can do, but if he gets in trouble, you know, the law will basically throw the book at him to try to like do a scared straight type thing. Wow. And so what was dad's take at the time about this? He's like, you know, it's not too late to go back. I think you would, you know, I think you're really going to regret it. Yeah. I mean, he just told me he thought it was a terrible idea. He's like, but you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm at work all day. I can't forcibly take you to school and you know, you should really think long and hard about this because these kind of decisions now will inf- will impact your future a lot more than you think they will. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you know, maybe over the summer you'll decide to go back. You know, maybe they'll let you test into your sophomore year because, it, you know, like I said, it was my freshman year. But yeah, then I got more and more like just kind of hanging out in the like, you know, party lifestyle. And by the time sophomore year came around, it was like... Phew, being at school, being in school was the last thing I wanted to do. Yeah. So during this time or like later when you looked back on it, did you ever wish, you know, kind of wish that dad had laid down the law more? Like, yeah, he couldn't physically take you there, but discipline you somehow about it or try to make you go back? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I kind of go back and forth on that because on the one hand, yes, he could have, I mean, he, he could have applied more pressure to make yeah, me go back. Right. I and mean, he even could have said, like, you know, looking back on it and like as a dad, he even could have said like, look, tell you what, like finish up your freshman year. And w- once you do that, if you decide you don't want a sophomore year, then maybe like test out and get your GED. And if you do that, then like basically kind of like right. try to find a middle ground mm-hmm. instead of like, nope, just not going ever to school, not graduating ever, bye-bye school. Or yeah. like, yes, I'm going to go to four years of traditional high school. So, but you know, but in another way, I, I kind of feel like it was the journey that I took and it was the right journey for me. Kind of the same way, like camping in the desert like mm. as a dad, do I think it was kind of crazy to let your 13-year-old camp out in the desert with just like all by himself for three nights and 
with just a bunch of dog food and an AR-15. Yeah, like on the face of it, that sounds pretty <laughs> wacky. Yeah. But was it the right thing to do for me? Yes. Because, you know, while I was dropped out, like that first year, like what would have been sophomore year was pretty like wild and just kind of like crazy times. Going to like little parties and being a little drug runner, basically being a little bit like, oh, I know somebody who can get you some whatever. Like Mm -hmm. like two adults at parties and they're like, oh yeah, do you? And just would run out and grab some stuff for them and bring it back and like make 50 bucks a night, whatever, which felt like a lot of money or sometimes even a hundred bucks. And then come back and like, you know, say two, three in the morning to the connections house and like party till five, six, seven, eight, nine in the morning, sometimes stay up two, three, four days, like talking to her and, you know, becoming, so like in a, in a way, in a lot of ways, it was like a great time in my life to be, to be like completely frank with you. It was yeah, totally fine. wild, man. It was totally wild and rock and roll. And I just had you know, a thought too, like in what? a weird sort of way, you kind of were like a character in Miami Vice. Yeah. I was definitely like the guy who just knew everybody. And I was like, I was almost like a professional middleman. Right. Right. You know, being a 16 year old on a bike is, you know, unless you're out past midnight, but you know, if you're just out between like eight and 10, eight and 11, whatever, seven, you know, whatever, like sun goes down at six, seven in the winter Mm -hmm. or, you know, like you're pretty low profile. Like nobody's they just think you're a high school kid on a bike, whereas you're right doing like these little very minor drug deals all night long mm-hmm. and supplying yourself and supplying everybody around you. And everybody thinks you're like the coolest guy or not even the coolest guy, but everybody, you know, if you, if you have what people need, people like you. Yeah. And actually like in a, in a poem once I wrote, love is like drugs or good art supply creates its own demand and i think mm-hmm. that's true love drugs and art those are the only three things where uh, a good supply can create its own demand yes and so eventually though you did get your ged right yeah so and that was cool go ahead no no i was gonna say tell me about that like what made you decide to do that so i mean it was quite an odyssey you know, I was like a professional middleman for most of my sophomore year. And then Christmas of 88, I basically moved in with Kat, mm-hmm. uh, like my main connect. And, you know, she was like older than me, but not that much older and you know, like we started, we, we shacked up, we started living together. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, that like started a kind of like a, a weird whole new chapter because she was a, she was like a professional dealer and like, that's how she paid her rent. It wasn't just like a little bit of spending money, like, you know, oh, some wow. weed here, or some, some this here, whatever. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was super intense, you know, like. We would basically like when the back porch light was on, the store was open and people, you know, all kinds of colorful characters. I'm sure you could imagine like, oh, yeah, there was a stripper named Mercedes and she smoked Coke and she came by for like big buys every two, three days, like three or four hundred bucks worth. And, wow, you know, then there was like this one crazy little dude who like would basically bring junk and we, would, you know, he would just want like a teeny little bit of product for for like old records and stuff. And sometimes we just gave him a teeny little bit just to like keep him away. Like he's, he, and then one night he waved a gun around on us and like towards us and at us. And wow. Yeah. I mean, it was so, so that was a super intense period of my life. And like, I know, I, I mean, I could go into much more detail, but I also feel it's one of those things that to really give the reality of it, it would, I would need to go so deep that, yeah. you know, this would be an audiobook, not a podcast. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, it was very intense time. And we started, you know, we, we, we basically violated like the main rules of like getting high on our own supply. 
And we got to the point where we were basically doing more partying, quote unquote, than selling. Mm-hmm. And our main guy, he was a dude in who had a used car dealership in Scottsdale, of course, right? Like yeah. on Better Call Saul, that's what it would have been too. <laughs> right. He, so we started owing him money and then we're like, oh, can you front us an ounce? And he's like, yeah, sure. So he fronted us. He gave us enough product on credit at, that we just kind of like used ourselves and didn't sell enough where eventually he cut us off. So that sucked, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're kind of out of business. Like neither of us is really in very employable shape. I was... 16 it was like the beginning of 89 uh and that would have been like the middle of my sophomore year i th- think yeah it would have been the middle of my sophomore year so then we were just kind of like just kind of scrounging and you know like I mean, we were broke man like eventually we got super duper broke and because of me so we were then you know we started falling behind on like rent payments and on utility payments and i remember once we'd been on like up all night partying you know because we still had a little bit going on we just knew enough people where we could kind of keep a little bit of whatever going but it wasn't enough to like pay all the bills Mm -hmm. and cat woke me up at like eight in the morning or something she had to go out and do something and she's like hey um, the, the electricity guy is coming over. So you, you need to wake up and there's like 40 bucks, like in an envelope by the front door. And if you, if you don't wake up, if you don't give them the 40 bucks, they're going to cut off our electricity. I was like, so like I hear knocking in the middle of the day, but you know, probably two, three in the afternoon. But I was like, you know, I didn't go to sleep until like five or six that morning. And I was just like, oh, forget it. Because you know what a crazy deep sleeper I am. Yeah. Like, what's your best example? Because I don't know if everybody would, you know, like, what would be your best? Because, you know, here the thing is, like, I know I'm a crazy deep sleeper, but I don't really have many stories about it besides this because I'm sleeping. I don't know. Not in particular, but you were such a deep sleeper that I remember when I was in high school and you would actually, like, pay me to wake you up. Yeah. And you'd be, like, so crazy hard to wake up. Yeah, where I, yeah, it wasn't, because it, it was like beyond a favor. It was like, yeah, it was like I knew I had a chore. To, yeah, it was. It was literally a chore. So I just slept through the electricity guy coming over, woke up, nobody was home yet, tried to turn on the light because it was starting to get dark outside. This was probably February, March, and uh, the lights didn't come on. I was like, oh, that's weird. And we wants to trip to Breaker. Cat came home and she's like, uh, why aren't the lights on? And I was like, um, I don't know. I think we tripped a breaker. She's like, did you give elect- Did you give the money to the electricity guy? I was like, oh, I thought that was a dream. And she was not happy with me. I bet. And I don't blame her no, at all. Yeah. To my credit, I told Kat, I think it was that night. I mean, I, I let her know. I don't remember the exact conversation, but I let her know. I said, look, you know, this is my fault. I'm really sorry. I'm not going to leave this house until I make it right. So Mm. we lived in darkness for, you know, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October. We lived in darkness for quite a while. Holy Um, shit. Are you serious? Yeah. You didn't know that? No. Like, couldn't you just, once you guys realize what happened, couldn't one of you go down to like APS or something and pay in person? Well, yeah, but the problem was because we had missed the minimum payment, it was one of those things like if you miss the minimum payment, then you have to pay in full. And it was about a $100, $120 utility bill. Got it. Very soon afterwards, I started just walking around the neighborhood. We were at 19th Street in Indian School. And I started walking around the neighborhood and like just stopping in the fast food places. You know, I'd only been 16 for three or four months or four or five months or whatever, mm-hmm. but uh, I knew I was old enough to get a, to get a job at a fast food place because in Arizona, that's, you know, I knew, I was well aware of like what the, what, at what age I could start working. Right. And I mean, and, and right after I dropped out, I did get a job uh, at a Baskin Robbins and like a little t-shirt, t-shirt shop at the, the mall at like, what is it, 20th and Thomas? 
but I mean, those were, you know, those, uh, but I was trying to keep those jobs while kind of keeping up my, my nighttime professional middleman lifestyle. And right. that didn't end too well. Yeah. yeah. And, I, yeah. and I hadn't moved out of the house yet. I was still living at home. Okay. Um, but yeah, it was Christmas of 88 that I basically went over to cat, like was doing like gangbuster business because, you know, it's Christmas time. Everybody's spending money. Mm-hmm. Everybody's getting money from relatives and just, I, I wasn't planning on moving in there, but I just kind of went over there for, and oh, cause she had actually asked me, she's like, Hey, uh, like after you do Christmas with, you, with your family, come on over here, we'll celebrate Christmas. And she's like, and actually business has been crazy good. So like, I wouldn't mind having you around mm. because, and this is kind of where having a gun nut for a dad is useful when she found out like you know when we were all just like casual acquaintances that you know my dad had a lot of guns I went to gun shows with him she's like oh cool like if you ever want to sell me one or you know so basically like I would I made sure that she had like a a, a firearm at on display while she was doing business like I didn't necessarily you know she didn't have it on her I didn't have it on me but there was like you know I had a big eight inch barrel Dan Wesson revolver Mm-hmm. that she would just kind of keep on the desk or I would keep on the desk when we weighed up the stuff for people. Yeah. People would come in, we'd weigh it right up in front of them. Like that was another reason that our business was so popular is we actually had like really good product and weighed it up right in front of people so that they knew they were getting what they paid for. Right. But I think, you know, her being a woman in her like 30s, you know, not old, not super young, but still like being a woman, mm-hmm. being a relatively small woman, like she liked just having a dude like me who was, yes, I was a teenager. I wasn't a huge guy, but she just kind of had backup. And I also had a really good, I had a certain protectiveness and intuitiveness. And like, I know this is going to sound crazy given the circumstances, but like a gentleness, like I wouldn't just get in your face like, hey man, what are you doing? But just kind of like yeah. an understated an understated territoriality, like an under, like where, where, where I wouldn't get in people's faces, but I just let them know I'm here and I know what's, you know, I'm here and she's not alone. Just so you know, buddy. So I got a job at Jack in the Box mm-hmm. once the electricity was off. And because I was kind of on the vampire schedule anyways, and I found out there was like a very slight pay, um, bonus for being on the graveyard shift. I think instead of 325 an hour, I made 350 an hour. Mm-hmm. I asked for the graveyard shift pretty quickly because also, you know, our electricity got turned off, you know, late February, early March-ish. But it's, you know, in Arizona, like once you get into like March, April, it starts getting really hot. Yeah. And to live in a house with air, in Arizona without air conditioning mm-hmm. during like the depths of summer you want to get on a night owl schedule yeah because i would just sleep during the hottest parts of the day and then you know wake up at six seven in the afternoon and go to work from 10 to 6 five days a week the jack-in-the-box was a block and a half away and it was whew, man it was wild i mean the, the kind of people you got working you know you had and you had some high school students who were on the up and up. Like there was this Mormon girl who was totally on the up and up. But you had a pretty good share of people who were like fresh out of jail. And this is the only job they could get. Wow. There were some crazy things, man. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. We had this one heroin addict, this dude who had a pretty serious heroin habit. And his dealer would come by all the time. And the way he paid for it is after you worked there a while, like if somebody ordered a, you know, ultimate cheeseburger and a large Coke, you're like, oh, that's 4.15 with tax. And you knew it was 4.15. And, and, and the thing about the graveyard shift is there was only two people on shift. There was mm-hmm. just the teller who also did a lot of the janitorial stuff. And mm-hmm. then the cook who also did a lot of the janitorial stuff. Cause most of the graveyard shift was like cleaning the shake machine, cleaning the fryers, you know, inventory would come in at like four in the morning. And so you would just make sure that the Jack in the Box delivery people gave you the, you know, 12 boxes of patties and 40 bags of huge industrial size bags of French fries. So if you knew, so if you knew, you know, people got pretty close, obviously, because it's 
two people working in this huge jack-in-a-box all by themselves all night long. You know, as far as the, the dude who had a heroin habit, he was able to just like, you know, maybe, you know, during the after bar rush, maybe make 20, 30, $40 just in increments of $4.15 for, so, you know, he'd be able to say to me as the cook, like, hey, make this and this. And like, okay, cool. He wouldn't ring it up. He would just pocket the money. So that's, and there was, there was a lot of that going on. They, they call, he called it bumping. So there was a lot of bumping going on of like people just knowing how much stuff costs, telling a customer, okay, cool, telling your buddy to make it and then pocketing the money. Was he ever caught? That you know of? I don't know. Okay. He didn't last long. Okay. So, you know, the people who were really messed up didn't last very long. So you, you work at Jack in the Box, and then what, um, what made you decide to get your GED after that? Just like the, how much it sucked or what? Well, so the manager at my Jack in the Box was a guy who had just graduated from Arizona State University like I like that year he had a like a bachelor's degree in business and you know I I would talk to him and he, he was cool you know he drove like I think I don't even remember what he drove but he had like a real car and mm-hmm. lived in like a real apartment and obviously wasn't living in the dark like I was and I mean nobody I didn't really advertise the fact to my friends at Jack in the Box that I was living in the dark and trying to save up money for you know because when you're making three twenty three fifty an hour on the graveyard shift and you're and then you are paying rent and you are paying whatever other little bills you have uh, like it takes a long time to save up one hundred twenty bucks. Yeah. So seeing this guy, and I would talk to him, and he was, what, five, six years older than me. Like, he was smart, but, like, I was like, oh, I'm just as smart as this guy, and here here, here I am living this pretty crappy life, and here he is living this pretty nice life. And, you know, in a way, thank goodness we had all these people who were, like, fresh out of jail or fresh into rehab or fresh into a halfway house And we had all kinds of, you know, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, who this was the only job they could get. And I guess the best way to say it is as much as I enjoyed my time kind of as a minor character in Miami Vice, seeing that the end of the road was most likely not like an art deco mansion, but much more likely being this old person with uh, no real possibilities. Seeing the end of the road up close and personal was very, uh, very Uh life-changing. You get your GED and then you go on a college and kind of like the rest is history, right? Kind of, yeah. So eventually... I did save, I think by the end of summer, I saved enough money to pay off the electricity bill. When I remember taking the bus there and going in and giving the nice lady the money, I didn't know, like, I didn't know what form to fill out or whatever, but she was like super cool with me. And I think I had stopped at Circle K to get it into a money order. And it was just tremendously satisfying to then like come back home and what had happened is actually we had gotten kicked out of our old apartment and had to move into this little place at 2nd Street and um, Osborne. I forget what the little street was or what the little name of the place was, but it was this kind of like rundown shack. And so we'd gotten kicked out of our old place. The electricity never got put on. We couldn't get the electricity on in our new place until this bill was paid off. Luckily, I was super close to paying off that bill paid off that bill like a week or two after we'd lived there. But the weird thing about that place is it is the, it was the house where a very, the trunk murders in Phoenix. I don't know if you ever heard of those. Yeah, but you told me about that before. Yeah, I think in the 1910s or 1920s or 30s. It, you know, a while ago, uh, I think it was more like the 30s, the 1930s. I think so. There was like a love triangle and one of the women cut up her romantic rival and they had put her body in a trunk like God. and hid the trunk in the house I was living in that's crazy which freaked me the hell out did you know but this if, at the time well 
cats just like, hey, I found us a, another place to live and it's actually like closer to your dad's house and there's a jack in a box like half a block away that maybe they'll let you transfer to. And that was the, one, of the, one of the unexpected benefits of working at Jack in a Box. Like basically I was able to like transfer my employment from the Jack in a Box near our old apartment where the electricity got put off to the new apartment where we didn't have the electricity on. So then just once we had the electricity on in our new place, I told Kat, I was like, you know, I've been thinking. And she's like, what? I said, you know, I think that I'm going to get my GED and try to go back to college. And she said, that is fantastic. That's excellent. And, you know, like I really got to give a lot of credit to, to Kat because even when we were in our partying days, she was like, honey, like you are too smart for this kind of BS. She's like, you know, you are, you have such a way with words. She's like, I have no doubt you would be like, you know, a good like English major and you, you love to read. I mean, dude, I would read crazy amounts, like, especially when I was like coming down from a three, four or five day binge, I would just mm -hmm. sit there and read like a whole Stephen King book, you know, at once. So she had definitely kind of planted the seed. And I, at first I was like, ah, oh, English major. I mean, for a long time. And what's really funny or what's really interesting is when you look back at the people who saw you better than you saw yourself. So I told her that and she's like, okay, that, you know, that's a great idea. And, you know, we were still living together, but I think the kind of the romantic side, had kind of fizzled out, you know, you know, I was, a, I was a dumb teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was fine. I mean, we, we remained friends for basically the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in some way, shape or form. So then I, 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 at one of my brunches with dad, or maybe even because I was living closer, you might remember, like, didn't I start coming over more often, like just to do laundry? Cause I think I was within range of like bringing over my dirty clothes to do laundry at your guys's place. That kind of sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So I kind of floated the idea with dad, like, Hey, I'm thinking about getting my GED, you know, and going back to college. And he's like, Hey, I think that's a great idea. You're welcome here. He's like, when do you want to move back? And I was like, well, I, and you know, I, I named a date and you know, in the meantime, like before, after my Jack in the box shifts, just kind of depending because I was still working the night shift a lot, but especially once we had the electricity back on, I tried to get more day shifts because it was just taking a toll on me mentally and physically to be on like an opposite schedule. And especially I was thinking like, if I'm going to go back to college and like enter the, enter the normal world again, cause you know, I was definitely living like a very, I don't, I don't want to call it fringe, but it was, it was countercultural, not in the hippie sense, but like right. really like this is what society says not to do. And here I am a, a little cog in this vibrant, black mirror image yeah. of regular society before after work or whatever I would I, you know I looked up you know GED classes and I would just you know I know at north there was like a drop they have you know and I guess the good thing about the high the high high school dropout rate in Arizona is they have a lot of like city run little like drop-in clinics you know like at north high one of those little shacks they had at the edge of the field was like open and you could just, you know, you don't have to make an appointment or anything. You could just drop in and be like, oh, you know, and take, you know, tests, not the official GED tests, but the, uh, you know, just a test to see how you would do like, oh, okay. You know, oh, okay. Thing, like an advanced test almost or something like that. Yeah. Like an advanced, just to have an idea yeah. what you needed to bone up yeah. on. And, you know, I guess the great thing about reading like a maniac and also having a dad who was super into science and stuff. Mm -hmm. And history, most of the stuff I didn't really even need to study for except the mathematics because, you know, yeah. uh, that's that's the kind of thing you just don't pick up in the real world unless, right. you know, unless you're, you're like a savant. savant. Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And in Arizona at the time, you had to take actually each. So it was in five subjects and I forget the exact ones, but it was like history, math, reading and writing comprehension, whatever, science and something else. 
and you had to take each test at a separate time. So it was actually like, it wasn't like there's, at least at the time, there wasn't one GED test, but you had mm -hmm. to take five separate tests. And, you know, they had this book, like at every little drop-in center, they had a booklet with like the schedule. And I think you did have to reserve your place, but you could just call. Yeah, so over the course of about like two months, I just, you know, took my first test and they didn't tell you the results until you took all your tests. So, you know, I took my first test, my second test, my third test. And I'll tell you, man, like my fifth test, it was at Metro Center, way out on the west side. And dude, I was just like so happy because I knew that even if I didn't necessarily ace all my tests, I was pretty sure, like I was confident in enough of my answers that I was pretty sure I passed it. Mm -hmm. So I, and I was like, oh my God, this is the fifth, this is the fifth test. This has been like quite a process. This has been quite a year. I think I had just moved back with dad. So, and you know, I had offered to pay him rent, but he'd said like, no, don't worry about it. Just kind of like get back up on your feet first. So I had a little bit of extra money, not a lot. Uh, I, gosh, I think a paycheck back then was, I think I brought home like $80 a week or something crazy like that. Wow. After taxes, maybe 90, maybe a hundred, but still not, 350 not times much. 40 yeah, yeah. after taxes. It's not very much. Um, and I treated myself like it was the first CD I ever bought because dad had recently bought a CD player, which right. I just thought was the coolest mm -hmm. thing. And, you know, and Kat had a CD player and she was like, she used to be a DJ. So she had all these. Really? Yeah. She used oh, to be a DJ. Huh, I didn't know that. An on-air DJ. So she was like super into music. And That's cool. you know, we, she got, I, we were super into music mm -hmm. and I'd never owned a CD before. So I saved up like twelve ninety nine to buy Metallica's and Justice for All. Nice. I think I kind of remember that actually. And you actually might remember it too, because let me see last year, it was 30 years ago that I got my GED mm -hmm. and I, I treated myself to a new tattoo of uh, yeah. the and justice for all person on my left shoulder. Yeah, no, it's, it's great, dude. So yeah, man. So yeah. got my GED, was super happy, super stoked. Um, you know, I was going to narcotics anonymous meetings around this time. Actually one of my Jack in the box friends, guy came in to work, like spun out, you know, I just done like a quarter gram or half a gram with somebody and he could kind of tell and he like sent me home. Then the next day I was like, Hey man, sorry about that. Like I, I want to quit, but I kind of can't. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know what, dude, like a friend of mine who was kind of in the same boat as you, you know, he went to this thing called Narcotics Anonymous and he's like, I know it sounds, you know, might not be your thing. He's like, but just give it a shot. And I was like, oh, okay. And I wish I could remember this guy's name. Cause he was you know, he lived in a trailer not far from the Jack in the Box. He was definitely not like, you know, he wasn't a success on paper, but he had like, he almost reminds me of like a Phoenix version of the dude in the Big Lebowski. Mm, wow. He was just very centered. Like mm -hmm. he smoked some weed, he drank, he lived a very modest lifestyle, but he also like had good advice and good insights into people. And, you know, didn't like yell at me or give me a hard time he, when I did come in a little spun out. He's just like, hey, dude, I think you should go home. And I would be because he's like, you know, like with these fryers and stuff, there could be an accident. And I don't want to be responsible for that. I was like, OK. And then when I came in and said something the next day, he's like, no, no. He's like, and, you know, and then I think we went he went, went to his house and smoked a joint. And then, he, you know, so basically <laughs> I learned about Narcotics Anonymous over a joint. <laughs> some dude drinking a beer in his trailer. That's awesome. And once I had my GED in November, it was, I think I got my final results a week before my 17th birthday. I, uh, you know, just rode the, rode the Thomas, rode the bus down on, down to Phoenix college. And I was just like, how do I enroll? And they set me up. They're like, okay, come back on this weekend. You'll take a placement test. And here's the course catalog and, you know, the lady. And man, I got to say, like, such a shout out to all these people who, you know, like worked at the GED place or worked at the community college who were just so, just some dumb kid comes in not knowing what the hell to do. And they had probably seen my type hundreds of times. And 
instead of, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like instead of mm-hmm. making you feel crappy. Cause also I had this weird thing about college. Like I was kind of scared, man. Like, hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. I was scared. It, like, it can be intimidating also, like, to people. Yeah. It can be intimidating, especially when you've had like what, six months of high school. Right. And, you know, and also like dad in his working class, whateverness, like, you know, I'm sure you remember him making jokes like, you know, when we'd first moved out there, when, you know, when I was still in high school or even middle school about like college and I'll turn you into a liberal and all this stuff. Yeah. And I I think he still razzed me a little bit, but I remember when I first told him, he's like, yeah, you know, he's, you know, and he's told me this, he told me this many times in many different contexts. He's like, I think I'm the last generation of working class who can like live what's basically a middle-class lifestyle. And we're starting to become a two-tier society, like those who have college degrees and those who don't. And mm-hmm. it's like that little piece of paper, it's kind of opened up so much doors. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, Phoenix College was actually great for me. You know, mm-hmm. I had to take some remedial math, but mm-hmm. I was pretty decent and everything else. And yeah, dude. That's great. No, that's great, dude. And what's cool is that, uh, so, you know, in Phoenix College, you know, I enjoyed it, took film classes. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, you know, I made the dean's list every uh, every semester. Like, I really liked it, and I liked it so much more than high school. Like, yeah. And it, part of my things about, one of my things about high school that, you know, I was already feeling kind of like, ah, screw high school, even before I went. But once I got there, like, you had to show ID to get in. You had, uh, like, fence. I don't, did North have barbed wire fence or just fence? But just, all I'm saying is, it, yeah, just fence. Yeah, I think so. It felt like a fucking prison, man. Yeah. Like, you couldn't walk off campus to go get lunch or yeah. unless you were a senior right, or whatever. Right. And I don't know. It just, this wasn't for you. It, it just rubbed me the wrong way. I, I, I need to be free, man. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a wolf. I ain't no lap dog, uh-huh, you know? Uh-huh. So I, but I really excelled and thrived in college, you know, kept in good touch with cat, just kind of, you know, just kind of like repaired and thrived and, you know, mm-hmm. NA was pretty wacky, but pretty cool. There was like, I would go down to this place at third street and not quite Roosevelt, this place called the arid club. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I made friends. Mm-hmm. I made some really great friends. I mean, that's how I know. That's how I know Tommy. Like I asked right. Tommy, Tommy F to be my sponsor and he, you know, thank goodness he was. And, and you know, and yeah, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm not remembering this right, but when I visited you in London, didn't we go to an NA there? Yeah, we did. Yeah. And that was another cool thing. So, you know, went back to, went back to college, you know, went back to community college. Like Aunt Julie was super proud and, you know, and Aunt Julie, even when I was, you know, a minor Miami Vice character, she would stop in and see me like once a month and be like, Hey, let's buy you some new clothes. Cause I basically had like one pair of jeans. Oh, that's cool. Uh, let's, let's go get you a haircut. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She was, so, you know, I, I had told her of my plan and she thought that was great. Mm-hmm. And she was like super proud of me for going back and like doing good at school and then she said oh you know my husband is going to retire soon she was married to this guy who was like the vp of finance for this big like financing firm and they had a headquarters in london and they had this beautiful two-story flat in the mayfair district of london and i had never and she's like he's about to retire so we only have that flat for another like four or five months why don't you come out and do a semester in london oh i didn't know that was like I didn't know that he was about to retire and that's why you did it right then. Yeah, so it was a forcing function, which was great. So, you know, I mean, so it kind of blew my mind, you know, having gone from like living living in the dark, fucking working the graveyard shift of Jack in the Box with people who were like, you know, bumping to supply their heroin habits Mm -hmm. to, you know, we took the plane together to her, you know, back to London. Wait, uh, who's, who's we, you and Julie? Julie and okay. I, yeah, because she and plus she had all these frequent flyer miles right. and you know whatever. She had a Lotus in Phoenix. She had a Lotus in London. She was playing pinball, like I guess semi professionally. I think she had gotten one of her female world pinball championships and like got some more in the meantime. Uh, and we pulled up to her place in London, and it was just like I'd never been out of the country besides Nogales. So to suddenly go from you know, by kind of bottom of the barrel to like, 
you know, staying in the same district that Michael Jackson stays in when he went there. Exactly. Or the way was, she told it, at least. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, no, it was mine. Yeah. It was right next to the Mayfair Hotel. I mean, it was, and just seeing how differently people treated you. And I think that's kind of important to mention is it's like between that experience of like basically getting to know what it feels like to be an extreme, you know, a, a pretty darn wealthy person for three, four months while, mm-hmm. while I took, took a class out there. And then, you know, once I got to ASU, I started into journalism, like the same skills, the same kind of intuitiveness and pers- gentle persistence, or my wife would say not so gentle <laughs> persistence, but a lot of the things that I found that I was really good at kind of as a minor Miami Vice character mm-hmm. were exactly what you need to be a journalist. Like just a good oh, sense of people, yeah, a good yeah. sense of when to like kind of go strong and when to kind of like back off that makes and, sense. and stuff like that. Yeah. And just making connections. I mean, really like <laughs> just being a middleman, just kind of being a middleman between like, oh, I hear this is going on. What do you know? And knowing the right people and, and all that stuff. Yeah. That turned out pretty well. In co- even you know in college it was great because I got tickets to go to shows mm-hmm. I got tickets to like go to opening night at the theater um, and I got sent out on press trips to to watch movies a few times and my very first press trip uh, was paid for by Disney and they put us up in the Four Seasons Beverly Hills bust us to some French restaurant and then the next morning we talked to. I don't know if it was this or an, a different press trip, but, you know, like through those press trips, like I talked face to face to Gwyneth Paltrow, mm-hmm. David Schwimmer of Friends, uh, that guy who was on Home Improvement. Who was a comedian on Home Improvement? Uh, Tim Allen? Yeah, Tim Allen. Damn. But I remember that first press trip, like we were coming back from a, a really nice French restaurant on Melrose that they had rented out for us. And just the way the staff at the Four Seasons treated us and the way the PR people treated us. Mm-hmm. It made me realize that, you know, for good or for bad, most people don't treat you for who you are. They treat you how they treat you because of what you can do for them. And that, I think, was actually really valuable because it made me realize that even though, like, I knew it. I was like, I'm the same person I was. Like, I'm just kind of, I'm just exercising my skills in a different, different venue and here people are treating me like, you know, cream of the crop at Jack in a Box. It's just some people. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of people who treat people the same no matter what. And that's great. But it kind of helped me stay really humble mm-hmm. and just kind of clear eyed. Like, you know, a lot of times people are being nice to you for what you can do for them. Yeah. You know, there are and, and you can tell the difference. There's people mm-hmm. who yeah, yeah, yeah. are just as friendly to their butler as they are to their executive vice president. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right, right, right. Um, but it was really a, like a good thing to see in such a dramatic way that you are not what you do, even though a lot of people think that you are. Right. So like we, we kind of have talked about how you were a big reader and a cat and like really everybody knew you were really smart. So I don't think you missed much like intellectually in high school, but do you ever like regret it in the sense of missing the social opportunities or like the social things that went with it? Um, our friend DB, you know, he would talk about high school and being kind of like a little scarred by it. So sometimes I thought like, Mm. wow, I actually missed a lot of trauma. Like maybe I got the trauma in a different way, but I missed a lot of high school trauma, Yeah, which seems good. But I also do think that you know, if I would have stayed like, and like, if my kids wanted to drop out of high school, I, what I would tell them, they'd be like, Oh, well, it worked okay for you. I'd be like, look, yes, it worked out. Okay. For me, it worked out as well as I think it probably could have for me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if I would have say applied myself in high school or maybe, you know, taken the rest of my freshman year off and gone back as a sophomore, applied myself, I probably am, you know, smart enough where I might have been able to get like a scholarship to a really good school. Yeah. And I might be a CEO or a VP or something. You know, mm-hmm. something. And 
and not, but here's the thing. I'm okay with that because that's not what I, what want. like kind of like my, yeah. And it's not what I want. Like my, my philosophy is, you know, there's always more money. Like there's always a way to get the money you need, but there's never more time. Yeah. So it's really like how yeah. do you spend your time? For sure. But I would, so I would tell my kids like, okay, you don't want to go to high school. How about this? You know, I would maybe try to find a middle way. Like, okay, just finish out this year or just finish out the next year. If you still feel the same, get your GED right away. Go to go to school right away. And I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is the more and the better education you have, the more options you have. I wouldn't insist maybe on the traditional path, mm-hmm. but I would insist on a path. Does that make sense? I think so. Yeah. Do I think I missed out on some things? Yes, I do. I think I missed out on some things for good and bad. Right. Do I think that I also learned some things doing what I did that I wouldn't have learned any other way or until much older? Yes, I, you know, I do. Circling back on how I would talk to my kids about it, I'd be like, you, you know, I would kind of support anything that they did that gave them more options. But if, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like you want options and you know, and I would even say like, if you go to, if you go to the best university, get a killer degree and you want to be, you know, a landscaper, that's fine because you could be a landscaper for 10, 20 years and then change your mind. Or you could be a landscaper for the rest of your life and never change your mind, but you always have the options. So luckily I have options. Mm -hmm because of, you know, getting a college degree. But I think if I would have, say, applied myself earlier, that I would have even more options than I do now. Yeah. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. So that's what you would tell them. No, that's good, yeah. I think. I mean... Trust me, that is a question that I think a lot about. Really? Um, kind of, yeah, because... Would I want my kids to do things the way I did it? No, definitely not. Mm-hmm. Um, just if nothing else, like the physical danger of it. Like I said, that one guy kind of threatened us with a gun and mm-hmm. like uh, I could have gotten shot or we could have gotten raided, you know, because yeah. it wasn't that much long after I moved home that I actually did get raided. But luckily there wasn't anything in the house. Well, what if I would have gotten raided and there was stuff in the house? Well, then my life would have been on a different trajectory probably because I might have at least had many court appearances, if not some like time in juvenile and juvie and, you know, and maybe it would all worked out like even for the better. Maybe I'd be some like motivational speaker. Who knows? Yeah. But let's put it like this. The chances of that happening get smaller and smaller. You know what I mean? Like. Like once you're in juvie, the chances of you having a certain amount of options is smaller than if you don't go to juvie. Right. You, you, know, what yeah, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Yeah. Yeah. Overall, not about just like social or intellectual things you missed out on, but do you regret it or do you kind of feel that like, kind of like you've mentioned, like this is kind of the path you had to take to get where you are now? I don't regret it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was necessarily the right thing. But I was able to make a very big mistake early enough in life that it was surmountable. Yeah. I think the later in life you make your big mistakes, Mm -hmm. the harder they are to overcome. I think there would be some things I would have done differently. Yeah. Like, I think I would have done very similar things, but it didn't have to be so hard. And I mean, trust me, man, it was kind of painful. Like it kind of sucked, I bet. you know, walking home from Jack in the Box at six in the morning and seeing everybody getting ready for school. And, you know, like, yeah, I remember when we lived in that house where the murder had taken place, you know, I would see the people streaming into the office in the morning. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because like people love to look like, you know, talk about like the, the soullessness of office life. Mm-hmm. But I was like, oh my gosh. You would kill for some of that soullessness. I would kill for some of that and just like stability. And right. Like they, they're not living in a fucking murder house without electricity. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. 
So, dude, can I just tell you one more thing before we end this? Yeah. So what I love about having taken off like 31 years ago now, like basically just have never come back for a spring break, is I kind of have it in my head. It would be hilarious to, you know, one of these days, like first day after spring break, a freshman class, North High School, Phoenix, Arizona, I just show up as this like, you know, almost 50, you know, 48-year-old man and just, just sit there and just act like, you know, everybody would be looking at me like, who's this dude? And be like, oh, yeah, I just, I went on spring break and it just took me 32 years to come back. <laughs> what do you think? Oh. You think they, like, what do you think they'd say, especially if I played it super seriously and, you know, they sent me to the office like, no, 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 you can look it up. I was a student here. I just went on spring break. Like, I'm allowed to come back, right? I, I never did get my, I never did get my degree here. I don't know, dude. I think, um, yeah, I think they'd probably call security. Yeah, probably. But you should you should try it. Let, let me know how it goes. Okay, will do. You want to wrap this doggy up? Yeah, yeah. It was it was it was a good talk. Do we have any reader email? We don't. But do you um, want to remind them of our email address? So it's two brothers, Rocky J Bear at gmail dot com. And I'd also like to remind people that if you're listening and you enjoy this podcast, please, please, please write us a review. We appreciate the stars, uh, but a written review will help share our, I don't want to say goodness necessarily, because that would be presumptuous, but our, our interestingness and our weirdness and our pain and trauma that we have tried to, <laughs> through the, you know, through the passage of time, perspective, a little bit of humor, have tried to turn into something something better and hopefully other people can like not have the exact same thing but relate to it on some level so write us a review please even just like one sentence like these guys are awesome or these guys suck yeah or, tell tell us if damn you hate it. us yeah tell us if you hate us just give us make sure you leave your home address <laughs> just kidding <laughs> yeah and watch out for trunks in your attic <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, cool, man. Thank you very much for the conversation. And this was actually fun to kind of have the tables turn on me a little bit. Yeah, no, it was great. Thanks a lot, Rocky J. And thanks to our listeners.